0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the Book of Ecclesiastes. In the 21st century, our lives are continually getting busier and busier. Each day brings more work, more stresses, and more responsibilities. Our hurried lives under the sun can seem monotonous, empty, and meaningless. All of it leaves us with one question, what's the point of it all? This is the question that is faced head-on in the Book of Ecclesiastes. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. It's good to see you all this evening. Welcome to those who are online with us this evening as well. We are, we have been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be resuming that again tonight in chapter 5. So while you're waiting, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Um, just thinking through those opening songs about the, the nature and character of God and our relationship with Him. And when we have that as our focus, as our, as our anchor, then it's so much easier to s- sing that, that last song, isn't it? oh, my soul, I'll worship your holy name. And, you know, I admit, there, I mean, there's times where I'm just like, I'm not feeling that. And it's usually because my focus is on other things. Um, and we'll talk about actually kind of in that vein, and that theme a little bit tonight as we, as we read through Ecclesiastes. Um, We're going to be just looking at the first seven verses tonight. I know we've been doing a chapter each week, but um, in my preparation and everything, I was just like, you know what, I think this one needs to, like, go a little longer, so we're going to do that tonight. But before we look at Ecclesiastes 5, I want to take a few minutes to uh, review some of what was from last week and Josh's message on chapter 4 and... Reminding ourselves that Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. It's wisdom literature. It's it's designed to impart to us information, knowledge, and in knowledge that should be used appropriately. Therefore, it's called wisdom. And used during our life to prepare us for a life with God now, with purpose and peace, and comfort, and um, all those things, but also for eternity. In chapter 4, we see that oppression is an issue of the sin nature. Josh brought that out really well. And not primarily as a result of abuse of power. At the core of oppression is the sin nature. We are oppressive because we are broken people, Unable to obey and follow God, apart from His work through the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, if all we have in this life and no eternity with God, then all difficulties, and specifically, oppression, would be especially bitter.? Right? If all we had in this life, and, and we were in that state, you, know, think of um, generations of people in some of these communist countries where oppression as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, is a constant life of oppression. And this is all we had. It would be especially bitter. What would be the purpose of life if it were not for eternity, if it were not for the gospel to be spread? But it is because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the life of Christ that we not only can endure during those times, but we can thrive, actually thrive in the face of adversity. As was mentioned last week, um, God has prepared a rest for us. And I really liked this. Uh, You know, I spent a few days away. Um, That's why Josh was teaching. But God has prepared a rest for us, not only in the future of heaven, but also here on earth. Um, and, and the rest that he's talking about is not necessarily from our work, from our labor, but rather a, a daily attitude, an action of, of worship and trust in the sovereignty of God. That is where our rest comes. And, and rest in that sense is an activity. It's not passive. It's, it's a seeking of the Lord. It's a drawing near to Him. And in that drawing near, we find great rest. This kind of rest is always available and allows us to cease from striving in our particular life circumstances, like trying to make things better, trying to make things happen. And it can prevent us from living really what amounts to a meaningless, meaningless existence. Kind of the kind of existence that says, get all there can right now while there's time, because this is all there is. It denies the purpose and peace that we have in Jesus, that kind of living. And when we find our meaning in Christ, we discover the benefits, actually, of a laboring in His strength, that there is a real purpose and there is a real joy to be found in it. We find His help through Him and others. We discover much-needed comfort from those places in our lives, from those He places in our lives and we receive their protection and safety found in this threefold relationship in us, our earthly relationships, and in the Lord. That, as, as uh, Josh mentioned, that threefold cord includes us, at least one other person in Christ. The truth is, through Jesus Christ, work can be joyful now. What we do for a living can be joyful now. Help, help in this life can be found now. Not just, we're not just waiting for it some, somewhere down the road. Comfort can be found now. Peace, protection, and safety, they're always before us, not always in the context of what we think. Sometimes we think, how often have we all prayed, show of hands, for traveling mercies, right? Probably every one of us, Right. And that's great. I mean, it's good that we ask God, right? But sometimes our motive is just so that we can avoid any hardship, right? Our motive is like, I just don't want to have a hard thing in my life. It has nothing to do with fulfilling God's will, right? But we can have that peace and security and safety because, as the Word tells us, he has, we are hidden in Christ. Everything that's important, is already stored up, hidden away, stored up for a future glory. But yet in the present, we can still have that joy and peace and purpose. How are we living this out? What does this in reality look like? How does it impact us? So moving now to chapter five, Solomon changes, charges us to see things from a truth and consequences perspective. He still kind of has this, um, he's not departed from this under the sun attitude or mentality. Under the sun meaning this is all there is in life. That's that phrase, under the sun. Life is just what we have right in front of us. He hasn't fully departed from it, but he's looking at it in the context of truth and the subsequent consequences of those truths. He is acknowledging the truth of God's existence. So, if you want to read with me chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, he writes Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing, they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a th- fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better better that you should not vow than that you should not vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So Solomon is kind of making this shift. And he's saying, really, there's a few things we can gather from this. First of all, there are, there are a few certain absolutes in this life. and One of them is the existence of God. Now, we know that there's lots of theories out there, lots of religions that um, present something other than... Um, the God of the Bible. But this is an absolute truth that cannot be avoided. When you boil it all down to there has to be a supreme moral authority and a creator of all that exists. In his under the sun proposition, Solomon is still fully aware of the existence and actually now highlights the foolishness of ignoring the consequences of disrespect toward the sovereign creator. So look at verse one. He says, Guard your steps. And this really is a profound warning. We might say it this way in our own vernacular you better watch your step because you don't know what's coming, right? That might You probably heard that in some action movie. You better watch your step. You're about to write a check. You're behind can't cash. Think back now to the book of Genesis, or the book of Exodus. Moses meets God at the burning bush, Exodus 3, 5. And he tells Moses to remove the sandals from his feet because he was standing on holy ground. Jump forward now to Exodus 24. Moses has led the people of Israel through the desert. They're now at Mount Sinai. And only Moses is allowed to go up to the mountaintop to meet with God. In this and many other circumstances there is both an implied and also communicated warning. Before you step foot toward the presence of God, you had better examine your attitude and motives. Really, we are to ensure our feet are not soiled with the sins of this world and track them into a holy place, into God's presence without care or concern. See, removing one's feet, or removing one's shoes, because that would be really painful if it was your feet. Um, removing one's shoes, is still, it's still a practice in many cultures today. And in the Hebrew culture, it, it, it was still is a sign of humility, of reverence, and of respect. And this is certainly reflected in this attitude of Moses toward God. So much so that when when the when the children of Israel come to the mountain and God says just you you they can come to this this close to the mountain but no farther and there was warnings given lest the anger of God break out against the people because because what have they been doing during this whole trip murmuring complaining whining saying it would just be better if we were back in Egypt with the leeks and the onions and the garlic it would be so nice. And God's like, you have lost your mind. But it's a sign of humility, reverence, and respect. This is why Jesus' example of prayer to the disciples in Matthew is so important. When we we consider this as we approach God, it begins by acknowledging the majesty, authority, and the power of the Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as on earth as it is in heaven. As we understand his absolute reign over all things, as I understand those things, the truth about who we are is more clearly seen. The condition of our hearts, our lives, is more clearly seen in light of His glory or through the light of His glory. And it results in this humility, this awe, this respect towards God. In contrast now, if you were to jump over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find... <coughs> Grace to help in the time of need. I got this little tickle in my throat. They won't go away. However, this confidence that it's talking about in Hebrews comes from an understanding of the price, really the price of the ticket into the throne room. The price of that ticket was the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy One of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, takes away my sin. In in earlier, in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it says there in 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Pastor Doug quoted this this Sunday. Of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, as we consider approaching God in His throne room, we must remember that He has given us the tools necessary to conduct a thorough evaluation of our motives. He's given us the tools for us to do some self-examination as we yield to him and his spirit the spirit opens our eyes to see the condition of our lives we cannot fool or manipulate god he sees all things even when we think they're they're hidden or hidden within the recesses of our hearts and minds like he can't get into that closet yes he can he has the key to every door And that knowledge ought to strike in us a sense of fear, and fear meaning awe, to cause us to pause for self-examination. More than that, it should cause us to lead us to listen, as James, chapter, uh, James mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the Word, and not just hearers hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and has gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does." If you're like me, I think we can all say we live in a world full of a lot of voices, don't we? Competing voices. Everyone has the opportunity and the ability to express their opinion on just about anything. You can go to any platform you want, all the way into the dark web, and you can find all kinds of crazy stuff. There is an unlimited supply of opinions and thoughts and voices competing for our attention. But it seems like there are few that are willing to set aside their ability or their right to speak and take a moment to listen, to consider the words of another person's story, their situation, much less to listen and obey the voice of God, to sit still long enough that you might actually hear God speaking into your life through His Word through other people. Solomon sends us a clear warning. Guard your steps or or watch your step before you approach God. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and it is from these that he judges us. For the one who does not watch their step is is called foolish and a doer of evil there in verse 1. How many careless thoughts or actions have I expressed in my lifetime? How about you in your lifetime? How many, how many times did I take, I can take care of business. How many times did I say, I got this. I can handle this. Without praying or seeking God first. First. Or, or, better yet, going into a time of prayer and saying, God, this is what needs to happen. That is the joke, right? If you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. Too often, we think we have a solution or an answer to a situation. And there have been times, as a, I, certainly as, as a pastor, as a chaplain, that I have relied on my schooling, my education, my training, to assist in a situation. And it's really, it's, it's to my shame. It should be to our shame when we think we are the source, the source of wisdom and solutions for crises. Really, for any circumstance in life, that somehow we have the answer. Now, I'm saying that in the context of apart from Christ. That apart from Christ, we have nothing to offer. To be sure, God uses our our schooling, our education, our training. However, it is only when these things are humbly surrendered to Him and His purposes that they become God-glorifying opportunities. With eternal results. So, the question we ask is Are we watching our steps? Are we examining our thoughts and the intentions before we approach the throne of grace? Remembering it is because of grace that we can approach him. And do we approach him with surrender and obedience? Because if we're not, it says here that we are inclined towards evil. And rather than obeying God's commands to love him and serve others, we will harm others. And then the warning continues now in verse two. Do not be quick with your mouth or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now I've mentioned this quote before. I've used it in my life a lot. It's been used on me many times as well, but I think it's worth repeating. Will Rogers said this, never miss a good opportunity to shut up. And we could take, that is some wise words. I mean, it parallels what it's saying here. Never miss a good opportunity to shut up. In fact, verses one and two, they actually build on each other, both reminding us to consider what we're about to say and why. Because God sees, God hears, and he misses nothing. He has this above the earth perspective. As it says in Isaiah It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to live in. That's what God is like. He's bigger than that even, but that's the closest approximation we could come, that he takes the universe and that's his tent, temporary place to hang out. And he sits above the circle of the earth I love that, too, because it's a, it's a little bit of science thrown in there. Before anyone knew anything about the shape of the earth, God had already said, listen, it's a great big ball. It's hanging out there in space. I set it out there, perfectly centered, perfectly aligned with all the planets. But that is his perspective. And it's not just that he sits up there from this lofty position and sees me like a grasshopper, this insignificant item, this bug, this insect but he sees all the way down into my inmost parts the thoughts and the intentions. What is a grasshopper to the Almighty God? Nothing more than an annoyance or something to be squashed. After all, he made them, right? He could, he, could make, he could wipe them all out. Every little grasshopper, he can destroy them all and make a million more in their place. They are mere dumb insects. And that's somehow times how I think I act. In fact, it, I know that's how I sometimes act. Like a dumb insect, just annoying. But aren't we grateful for God's kindness. So remember, when you're entering into your prayer time, when you're preparing to worship and, and to hear from God, never miss that good opportunity to shut up. Take, take time to, to listen, to sit quietly, as, as the Word says, to meditate upon Him, and not in, not in some weird um, New Age way, but it it is a purposeful, intentional decision to focus our minds upon God, his nature, his character, his word. To ponder those thoughts quietly and in our minds saying, Lord, I desire to know you. I desire to hear from you. And he says, and let your words be few. Verse three, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice, the voice of a fool through many words. I never really understood this. I was digging into this a lot, um, chewing on this. I was reading it every night that I was up in the mountains, um, deer hunting, and I was just st- struggling over that. Like, what in the world is he talking about? I like what the Living Bible says. It says, just as being too busy gives you nightmares, so being a fool makes you a blabbermouth. It's pretty simple. <laughs> Sam sometimes asks me, hey, are you living in your head right now? Now, I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. If we're not careful, we can all fill our lives with a lot of responsibilities and weights and burdens. And in the process, we can begin to process, and I think us guys are particularly uh, um, prone to this. Like, we'll, we'll think things through before we ever talk them out. Right? So we're living in our head. We're processing all the possibilities. But we can get trapped in there. And I've had many, certainly had many restless, sleepless nights because I'm processing these things over. How can I make this situation better? How can I provide for this? How can I fit that into my schedule? And in the process, my mind won't shut down. And I find myself, even in the presence of others, living... Inside my head, I'm having dreams that have no resolution and no meaning. I, I've had nights where, with terror, right, about the circumstances of life and it's eating me alive, and, and I can't seem to get it, so I go lay, sit on the couch and try to put those things aside. He says, This is the pointlessness. Those dreams have no resolution and they're full of frustrations. I'm not saying all dreams do. <laughs> The ones that stem from those things where we're so busy, so full of ourselves and what we want and what we desire or what we think we need or what we might do, that we can't take a moment to understand that God is waiting right there. Working or striving for something without godly purpose only produces meaninglessness and a dream full of frustrations. And when my life is too busy, I'm more apt to speak before thinking, to act before praying. And the result is often a bigger mess than what I started with. Can you relate to that? That we think we've got the solution, we move it forward. And then in the end, you know, Pastor Doug has said so many times, it's easier to make a mess than to clean one up. And so we've got this fast track, fast forward, fast, you know, I got to have it now. Now, You know, if I just take care of it today, it'll be it'll be behind me, and God's saying, "Well, wait. I've got some other purposes in this." In our study in Luke chapter 22, that Doug's been going through on Sunday morning, this was the case with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. They failed to guard their steps with prayer, to seek the Father as a priority, and the result, really, as Doug mentioned, was a hacked-off ear, a lot of hacking, a lot of activity but a lot of harm without purpose and a band full of fearful sheep running from the shepherd. I just say, as we we consider our need to be thoughtful and guarding our steps, making our words few, we also need to understand the increasing consequences if we do not. Verse four, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you not vow than you vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. So you see, if we're not careful and we're not watching our steps in our times of prayer, in our worship, in the study of God's word, then we're also likely to fail in public ways. Throughout histories, many soldiers, marines, sailors, airmen have made combat promises. Oh God, if you will only deliver me from X, then I'll I'll stop cussing, I'll stop sleeping around, I'll stop getting drunk, all a myriad of other problems and issues. Or, Or perhaps you've been like me oh, if you will help me this time, God, I will promise, fill in the blank there. Let's make something clear. I'm not talking about, when it it says here about making vows, I'm not talking about a, a rash promise, like in the heat of the moment, in the desperation of life or in being manipulated into something that we later on regret. In fact, even in the law, there was provision made for such things. That was in Leviticus chapter 5. Or you suppose you make a foolish vow of any kind, whether it's for the purpose of good or for bad. When you realize it's foolishness, you must admit your guilt. When you become aware of your guilt in any of these ways, you must confess your sins. Then you must bring them to the Lord as the penalty for your sin, a female from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. This is a sin offering with which the priest will purify you from your sin, making you right with the Lord. But aren't we glad we don't live under that old covenant where we've got to go find a sheep or a goat and every time we like, oh, man, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'll never do that again. I'll never eat at that place or I'll never whatever. Fill in the blank, right? As participants in the new covenant... Under Jesus' blood, these types of sins are settled by grace through faith. That is, because of the grace offered through the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can, by faith, offer a sacrifice by asking forgiveness through prayer with an attitude of humility. We can just approach him, as, it's there, as mentioned in Hebrews, to approach the throne of grace with confidence, not with, with some animal, dead animal, but with just a humble and contrite spirit that says, I mucked this one up. I've made a mess. And God, you see me. Matthew still gives us a strong warning. Matthew chapter five, verse 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you do not swear an oath at all either by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is the, his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king and do not swear by the by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black well you can with dye but all you need is to simply say yes or no anything beyond this comes from the evil one So he's still giving us a warning, be careful. Be careful what you say, oh God, I will do this for you. That's why we ought to consider, it says, to guard our steps. As mentioned in verse six, when in the presence of the messenger of God, that is the priest of God, we might say now in the presence of Christ, As we believers, as believers, we're always in the presence of Christ through his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Therefore, we should be cautious and few in our words, lest we sin against him and bring harm to our own lives, our circumstances, and to others. the rest of verse 6 there and 7, Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words, there is futility. Rather, fear God. Again, like many useless words, many dreams are often filled with things that might have been, might be, or perhaps we wished would be, or even the terrors of the night, as I mentioned. that they're empty. They serve no real purpose but to disrupt our peace and our rest in Christ. this idea that, man, if I could just make that dream come true. But when those things are not surrendered to God, they are empty. Solomon sums up all the thoughts on being thoughtful, prayerful, and humble before we speak act or agree to anything by saying, rather fear God. And this, I think, is, is often difficult for us to fully understand and comprehend. Uh, we've heard many of the same phrases that I'll share with you tonight regarding the fear of the Lord, um, the fear of God. But I'm not sure that, except maybe in extreme circumstances, and we see some of those in the Bible, um, in crisis situations, perhaps, that we really truly understand the fear of God. So fear of God does not mean to be afraid of Him. In this context, it does not mean to be afraid of Him, like He is as someone said, this cosmic killjoy waiting to pull the rug out of under our feet or to squash me like a bug, as you know, in Isaiah, Isaiah there, like a grasshopper, just really to crush me. No, it's not talking about being afraid of. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines fear as an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipating or awareness of danger, anxious concern, or unpleasant alarm. But it adds this note also, profound reverence and awe especially toward god as as solomon really and as the whole bible reveals god is in heaven he is at the same time he is outside of everything and yet intimately involved in everything He is above all things. He holds, as the scripture says, all things together by the power of his word. By mere words, when we look at Genesis, the opening chapters, he spoke the universe into existence. From nothing into something. And not just something, but something Amazing and wonderful and beautiful and frighteningly complex. Isn't it amazing that that we can't create the level of camera that is in the human eye? Isn't it amazing that God created a bug, the bombardier beetle, it carries within its bodies two chemicals, then when threatened, it can ex- exert both these chemicals out of its behind, when combined together, create fire. How weird is that? <laughs> that he created dinosaurs, that he created Mankind that he, he created things we're still trying to comprehend, fish that can live at impossible depths in the very lowest parts of the sea. But more than that, he can see, he can perceive, understand, know every thought I have before it is on my mind. To know at the number of every one of my days before the first one began. To count every hair on my head and the loss of them throughout my lifetime. <laughs> Some it's a little shorter trip. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> we also know that he is just. That means there are real consequences for our actions. Real consequences for mocking him, disrespecting him, rejecting him. But he is also equally gracious. We talked about this this summer, grace and truth. He is equal parts of both. 100% and 100%. His love is immeasurable. In fact, caused him to offer his son himself on the cross to fix the mess that we made. That we might have purpose and peace in this life and, as a bonus, eternity with him. So with this view of his character and nature, with that view, just a, that's just a tiny little glimpse of him. We ought to stand at the foot of the mountain like Moses. At the foot of the cross like the centurion when he said, surely this must be the son of God. As the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, did our hearts not burn within us as he revealed the scriptures to us? As I mentioned, this last week I went hunting. Um, you can't, it's a little grainy, but you can see the picture. That is a picture looking over one of the canyons there in uh, the Wallowa Mountains. And that's not, that's not a filter, that's all natural. And... The sun was beginning to set and there was just this stillness in the air and, and the bottom of that canyon is ridiculous. It just keeps going and going and going. That's along what's called Joseph Canyon. And for just a few moments in my life, in that moment as I was looking over this, the vastness and the beauty of what God created, everything kind of melted away for a moment. My fears, my anxieties, my, my concerns about, okay, when I come back from vacation, these things I got to take care of and what's going on, you know, with Sam and Brielle and, her, and my, my mother-in-law, Susan. So you see, because before me, there was a taste, a, a little taste of the wide expanse of God's glory. But you see, it takes time to shut up to do that. See, we're deer hunting, so I mean, I can't sit there and talk with Carlos Sr. We won't see any deer. So it's just the wind, the mountains, the animals, the glory of God. And for a moment in that, things just slipped away. It's like, man, Lord. And it was, so we were starting to hike back up because we'd hiked down farther down there somewhere. (laughs) And then we had to, unfortunately, hike back up. (laughs) But in that moment, it's like, man, I want to capture this. I want to remember for a moment of standing in the midst of his glory. And to think he still looks down on you and me and declares his love for these insignificant specks, these insects. Charles Spurgeon said, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all fears before it. This awe of God, this understanding of who he is, even in our limited capacity, when we approach him and he says, I will show you, if you knock, I'll open the door, I'll show you. It chases away every other fear. Proverbs fourteen twenty six says, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. As we stand in awe of God and his majesty, his kindness, his love, his grace, his mercy, There is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life by which one may avoid the snares of death. So I would say to myself as I look at the coming weeks and months, whatever God has for us, whatever purpose he has for us tomorrow morning, As we approach Him, I pray that our words are thoughtful, careful, prayerful, and eternally meaningful, and that they may be few and provoke us to a godly obedience in light of who He is. In the light of His Son, by His grace, in awe of Him, may we say less and mean more. Amen? God, we come to you not because we've got this all figured out, but because we're just some some messed up kids sometimes swinging away with whatever sharp implement we have in our hand. Sometimes being a blabbermouth, just not considering the content of our words. or being prideful and thinking that we have the solution, that we have the answer and we just don't have time to rest, to stand in awe, to fear you so that we might rightly come to you. And I know that your word says that you have a tender heart to those with a contrite and humble heart and so that may that be us today tonight as we lay down before we close our eyes god in sleep i pray we wouldn't miss a good opportunity to shut up. And instead to contemplate the vastness of your majesty, the incredible depth of your love, the relentless nature of your justice and the kindness of your mercy. And that would center us. And it would give us thoughtful words and a few words that have significance and align with your heart. By your grace, we ask you, and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to week five of our Ecclesiastes study. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.